to Greenwich. You're a three-decker sauerkraut and toadstool sandwich with arsenic sauce. This is Charlie Tisklin. Door. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor, 88.3 to the left. show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David and my guest today is Peter Ho Davies, author of the collection of short stories The Ugliest House in the World which came out in 1998 and has received the H.L. Davis Oregon Book Award, the Mail on Sunday John Lewell and Reese Prize and also the Penn Macmillan Silver Pen Award. He's also the author of the short story collection Equal Love which came out in 2000 and was the Los Angeles Times Book Prize short list for fiction and the New York Times Notable Book of the Year Award recipient as well as the Asian American Literary Award shortlisted. Currently, he is um, here because we're going to get a sneak preview of his novel, the first, which is due out in, is it February, Peter? Uh, Mid-February. Mid-February, yes. This is The Welsh Girl, and um, it's... uh, the anxiously anticipated and awaited first novel of Peter Ho Davies, who has been celebrated by critics as reminiscent of James Joyce, Raymond Carver, and I've even heard Borges and Kafka invoked in, your, in reference to your story. That's a nice company to be. I know, that's some excellent company. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for oh, joining me today. Thank you for having me. A real treat. Um, you are currently the director of the MFA program in creative writing, but I believe this is you're finishing out that. Uh, in fact, uh, this is about my last day, I think, in that role since I'm about to leave town. And uh, my colleague Eileen Pollock will be taking over from me starting in January, but she's very much uh, already in the transitional, you know, director-elect kind of mode. Oh, got it. Well, I mean, that must be a relief to sort of step down from well, one of those responsibilities. It's something of a relief, uh, but I'm also very glad Eileen's going to be terrific in the role. And, uh, you know, it's nice to be handing it over to her. To good hands. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I wonder if you would start us out with a little bit from The Welsh Girl. Um, we generally start the show with some stuff from the book in question. Sure. This is um, this is a slightly uh, tricky passage because the, um, the word that the, the main character is uh, responding to is a famous, and many of us will know it, Anglo-Saxon uh, insult, swear word, uh, that I can't use on air, as, as you've mentioned. Um, just to contextualize this a little bit, this is a, a, a curse that's been hurled at her and that she is uh, going to hurl or has just hurled back at somebody. Uh, she, in this case, is the main character, Esther, who's a young Welsh woman. Um, and she's sort of reflecting, I guess, on her relationship to the Welsh language and to the English language. She has no idea what it means, of course, what it actually means, just its emotional meaning, fury, contempt. She has never heard anyone else use it, and not only, she thinks, because it's an English word, but perhaps also because it's a secret word, unspeakable. 
She's so used to the secrecy of Welsh, the cloak of it that the villagers draw around themselves at the pub or in the high street if a stranger passes, that it thrills her a little to know a secret English word. She thinks of the great dictionary in Mrs. R's classroom. Is it still there, she wonders? But the way Mrs. R handled it, carrying it into class at the start of a lesson like the tablets of the Ten Commandments, letting it topple with a slam on her desk to silence them, Esther guesses it must have been Mrs. R's own volume. More likely, it's in her house now, behind the counter of the post office, or perhaps in the parlor where all the ladies in town kept their best things, stuffed songbirds under bell jars, burled mahogany mantel clocks, and the massive dictionary with its winking golden spine and tissue paper pages. Esther imagines looking up the word, but such, but would such profanity be there? She pictures a blank space on the page, a gap in the record. She has the idea, fixed from the schoolroom, that Mrs. R knows all the words in the dictionary, but she can't imagine her knowing this one. Not that her old teacher hasn't been known to swear. Dash it all, she would cry if the chalk broke, or sometimes more softly, dash it, girl, if Esther disappointed her. It seemed at once so unladylike to curse, and yet the phrase had a kind of tough elegance, so much less crude than her father's blasts and bloodies. Looking up the word one night when she had stayed behind to clean the board, and Mrs. R. had been called to see the headmaster, Esther was pleased to see the meaning, to smash, to throw down. She picked a teapot for some reason, swept onto the slate flags of the floor, shards flying in all directions. She'd snapped the book closed on the rest of the definition before Mrs. R. had bustled back into the room. Her teacher had dismissed her then, thanking her solemnly, and in this way Esther had known the headmaster, Dr. Locke, had told her that Reese was failing in another class. She only stayed behind in the hope of walking home with Mrs. R., talking to her about some book she'd borrowed, something by the Brontes, say, whose work she devoured her last year in school, fascinated by the doings of the English gentry, though she knew Arthur would disown her if he knew. But on days when Reese had got in trouble, Mrs. R. would send her on ahead, sit in the schoolroom for a while, and walk home alone. She looked so beaten down those evenings, a mother suddenly, no longer a teacher, and Esther wanted to hear her swear, dash the boy. Only months after leaving school, reading one night, she came across a passage of dialogue, the character cursing, the line printed only as a dash, and it dawned on her, of course, what a dashed fool she'd been to miss it. Suddenly it seemed the most literary of swear words, not a word at all, really, but the absence of words, words too awful to print, to speak. Except now, she thinks, she knows some of those words, those awful English words. Wonderful. Thank you very much. That's Peter Ho Davies reading from his forthcoming novel, The Welsh Girl. Now, in the, on the jacket copy, the book is described as an ambitious and moving wartime romance. It's set in, um, toward the end of World War II in the countryside of Wales, predominantly, and um, in the Snowdonia Mountains. Right. And no biography about you fails to mention that you are born of um, a Welsh father and a Chinese mother who grew up in Malaysia. And you, however, grew up in England and have been living in the States for the last 10 years. This particular book gets at the question of national identity and um, Wales being the first colony of England, uh, the British Empire, and um, or what became the British Empire. Um, I wonder if you would talk a little bit about the story of why and how you came to write this sure. particular novel. I mean, I think most 
most fictional works, and I, that maybe this is especially true of a novel, there are multiple sort of ways into the work, a number of things that lead us, you know, particular aspects of it to issues of location, to the characters and how we write about them. I think probably for me, I was first, um, if I go back in my earliest memories, uh, my grandmother lived in Wales for many years, um, and I spent a lot of family vacations there with her. And I, I remember as a child that she had... Um, a number of sort of small brass ornaments, trinkets on her mantelpiece that she would polish from time to time. And they would be small things like a, you know, a letter opener in the shape of a sword, um, a small sort of tobacco tin that looked like a treasure chest to me as a child. And I, there must have been some point when I asked her where she'd got them or where they'd come from. And that's when I learned that they had been made by, uh, by prisoners of war from sort of spent shell casings. The brass was from spent shell casings. Um, and I think as a child, that was one of those first few moments where you sort of feel that little brush of history across your own sort of young life. And I'd been interested in those prisoners and interested in the idea of prisoners of war being in this sort of very remote rural area in, in Wales where my grandmother was living. And so that's probably the earliest sort of notion of this possibility of German prisoners of war being in this location, a location that I knew well, even though these men were themselves, of course, very distant to me. Um, and then in various writings that I've done, um, as an adult, I've often touched on Welsh material. My father's from that area. I've often been interested in um, that part of my heritage. And in some research for other materials, I'd come across this odd notion that um, certain Welsh nationalists, and Welsh nationalism is a, a sort of political movement that's been operating in, in Wales really for the best part of a century, attempts to preserve the Welsh language, preserve some of the national identity. Um, and in many ways, I, I think of as a fairly benign nationalism, something that's doing a lot of good for Wales. Um, but uh, before the war, there were some ties between Welsh nationalists and Italian fascists, for instance. I think um, probably in that period, at least some of those, um, those Welshmen would have thought that any enemy of the English was a friend of ours in some sense. And I think that connection made me think about uh, ultimately the comparison between what I think of as a somewhat benign nationalism, I would say like Welsh nationalism, and of course uh, that there's a much more obviously evil um, form of nationalism we consider to be national socialism. And so that, that comparison and the idea that um, German soldiers, uh, men who'd been in many ways sort of loyal to the Nazi party, might be here in this space, surrounded by, uh, in the community around their camp, many Welsh nationalists, known only as a hotbed of Welsh nationalism. It's like a very interesting comparison between these takes on nationalism and both the sort of the, the more positive aspects of nationalism and the much more evil and much darker aspects of it. Which one could write an essay or a book about in nonfiction, and you've chosen to do it in the context of fiction, and in part by using um, a sort of impossible love story to do it. Um, the, an ambitious and moving wartime romance is, um, was a surprising thing for me to read on the back of the, the cover, in part because it, um, it doesn't sort of seem to have the gravity that I find in the work. Um, Talk a little bit about romance and <laughs> how you... Well, <laughs> in this particular context, um, I suspect romance is, you know, how publishers position books and encourage readers to, to read books. And I, I do think there's... Um, uh, the simpler way of putting this, I, I suppose, is to say there's a love story embedded in, in the book. Um, romance has various other connotations, of, of course. Uh, but I was interested in that love story, and I was interested in this idea of, uh, you know, my Welsh character, Esther, um, 
forming an attachment or a relationship with uh, one of the German prisoners. Um, that seemed intriguing to me. And it, again, goes back to this idea, I suppose, of my questioning of how did my grandmother come by these strange trinkets? Um, I've never knew that. It's, it's never been made clear to me. In fact, uh, you know, when I've talked to family members, nobody's even quite sure if these trinkets that my grandmother had were made by German prisoners, whether they were made by prisoners during the First World War, um, during the... Uh, uh, early part of the century, there were even IRA prisoners held in camps in, in North Wales as well. So they could have been made by a variety of, of prisoners. But still the notion of a, a young girl, as my grandmother would have been then, somehow receiving these tokens. Uh, I always had sort of an image of them being passed through a fence to her. And that, that interaction seemed interesting to me and sort of transgressive as well. Um, and you asked earlier on about um, that sort of bio line that's very typical for me, a Welsh father, of course, and um, sort of Chinese mother. And I suppose to some degree I am genetically disposed to an interest in forbidden love stories, or at least improbable ones, or ones that cross uh, significant boundaries. Um, you know, in the, the period in which my parents met and married, um, that was something of a transgressive relationship. I, relatively briefly, thankfully, my mother was disowned by her family, for instance, when she married my father. Um, and I suppose as part of one's own family history, and indeed as, as part of, you know, the background by which one gets to be here at all. Uh, I've always been interested in that idea of how one has the bravery to cross those lines or how those lines are, are crossed in, in relationship spaces rather than taking the more, um, the more obvious or approved romantic partner as a choice in some ways. Well, and you, you spoke just a little bit about that romance can be taken in multiple ways. In this case, it's a romantic relationship or forbidden love. But um, there's also this notion of a romance toward one's heritage, one's past, one's um, or the past in general. Um, you, you neither speak Welsh nor grew up in Wales. Do you feel that there's a sort of romantic um, gravity that you feel pulled to this story in that sense as well, personally? That's a great question. Um, I think in terms of my own relationship to to my Welshness, or otherwise, I, I think the question of my Welshness is um, up for grabs to some extent, uh, is one of the things that drives my interest in writing the book. Um, you know, I think the question writers often encounter is that question of whether or not we have the right to write about this material, whether we own it, whether we possess it, whether it's ours um, to do with as we will. And I'm not sure that's true for me about Welsh material. And for some period of time, particularly while engaged in the novel rather than, I think, in some sense with the shorter stories that I'd written previously, there was this feeling of, you know, am I allowed to write this? And I... I think I reconciled that for myself, at least, by the idea that the reason I wanted to write about Welshness, the reason I was interested in it, was exactly because I had this question of how Welsh am I and what is Welshness. When I was growing up, um, you know, in the 70s, particularly as a child, it always felt to me that the defining feature of Welshness was the speaking of the Welsh language. Um, the language certainly then was somewhat in decline in, in more recent years. Um, it's recovered somewhat. Um, but it felt as though my father's family, the area of North Wales where he's from, um, you know, that's, that was one of the last bastion, the last sort of redoubt, I think, of Welsh speaking. Uh, and I spent many family vacations there with him uh, and other family members being the only non-Welsh speaker in the room and as a child simply watching people throw language backwards and forwards over my head that I had no sense of. Um, I was very much an observer. Maybe this is one of those starting points as a writer, I suppose. Um, but I never learned the language, and that's partly, I think, because, you know, I grew up in a, a family of two um, non-native speakers of English. My father's uh, first language is Welsh. My mother's first language is Chinese. It felt like a political choice. If I choose to learn Welsh, I'd have probably felt I ought to learn Chinese. Chinese. Yeah. And that seemed like an awful lot of work for, you know, a kid who was struggling with French uh, and German in, uh, in school. Um, but I, I suppose, 
not speaking the language, I've always been curious about what other other ways in which I'm Welsh. Are there other ways I might choose to identify as Welsh? What does it mean to be Welsh if one at least takes the issue of the language away for a moment? And I think to some degree because of the the emphasis on the language politically, uh, certainly for many of the years of my childhood, it felt like other aspects of Welshness were variously obscured. Um, what I often, I think, talk about in this context is when I first came to the U.S., it was very clear to me that there was a very visible Irish-American community. Um, there's even to some degree a pretty visible um, Scottish-American community. Um, there's an almost invisible Welsh-American community, even though there's, there's plenty of sort of um, a, a lengthy history of immigration from Wales to the U.S. as well. And there are, there are sort of pockets and we can see place names that reflect that Welsh heritage. But by and large, the Welsh-American community, even though I've met uh, a number of people in it subsequently, is a relatively invisible community. And in part, I think that's because... You know, Scottish Americans can point to, you know, certain external signifiers, the kilt, eating haggis, tossing the caber. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, these are trivial things in some sense, but, yes. but very recognizable. And of course, we know that the Irish American community, you know, they can drink Guinness, they can wear, a, you know, a green plastic bowler hat on St. Patrick's Day. Um, uh, so there are, again, external signifiers of Irishness. Uh, there are very few external signifiers of Welshness. If I wore a leek in my lapel on St. David's Day, which is the equivalent to St. Patrick's Day, I, I think most people, you know, on State Street or in Angel Hall would be completely puzzled by what I was doing. Actually, some some people in Angel Hall would, would recognize the references of Shakespearean one, I suspect. Um, but it felt a shame to me that Welshness, and indeed, the, in, a, in the historical sense, the preservation of Welshness might be endangered by the fact that it wasn't recognisable. If language is the only thing that defines Welshness, or the predominant thing that defines Welshness, that's about excluding other people. And it's also about Welsh people defining their identity to themselves. And yet I always think that aspects of identity that are important to us both have a dimension where we define ourselves to ourselves, but we also define ourselves to others as well. And so it felt as though there were, I wanted to find some things that would reflect outwards on Welshness. And so I wanted to explore these characters and discover for myself what their Welshness might consist of. Um, but I suppose in a certain sense, um, I'm also hypothesizing that these are Welsh characteristics and maybe some Welsh Americans out there will recognize them in themselves or choose to recognize them in themselves. Um, you know, somebody of, you know, Chinese heritage and Welsh heritage, born and brought up in uh, the UK, now living in the US. Um, and I don't think my story is actually as unusual now as it would have been, you know, 20 years ago. Um, it feels like there are more and more people for whom identity and uh, national identity particularly is somewhat elective we choose which parts of our heritage we incorporate as parts of ourselves. If Welshness can't project itself outwards, people won't be choosing it. And to some degree, I'm curious about trying to help project it, I suppose, in some ways, or at least my, my sense of it. Well, we are going to um, do that right now by playing a little Tom Jones, which the most famous Welshman, <laughs> the most in, the United famous States, Welshman in the United States. We're going to take a short break, um, and although the Welsh Americans out there can claim Tom Jones, um, iconographic <laughs> lounge singer, um, for their own, this is the Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Peter Ho Davies, and we'll be right back. It's not unusual to see me cry, I wanna die 
That's Tom Jones, famous Welshman, singing. It's not unusual. And uh, my guest today is Peter Ho-Davies, um, famous Welshman as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tom Jones' level of fame is something that, uh, well, I'm not sure I would want necessarily. <laughs> I'm sure it has its advantages. It must have its advantages. Well, um, we're going to talk a little bit in this section of the show about novel making. And if you'll indulge me, I'm going to do something perhaps a little strange, um, which is to talk about Robert Ludlum for a second. Mm. Um, because I was watching The Born Identity last night, that's no other reason than that. But it, it, but it turns out it'll, it'll work pretty well. Sure, okay. um, I'll trust you. you Hess, um, famous Nazi, who's a, a character in your book, um, suffers from amnesia mm. and spends time in the Welsh countryside sure. in a safe house. Um, born amnesia that's the whole oh, character line I there that's going, here, sure. here we go um and as a boy you read a lot of science fiction um and i'm wondering when we think about robert ludlum for example who wrote 21 or so thriller novels in his lifetime all of which made it to the new york times bestseller list translated into 32 languages 210 million books in print people went on to write in his style using his name after he died other you know it just goes on and on and on um and he's sort of credited with thinking that he understood that energy and escapism and action was what the public wanted, and that's what makes a novel. Um, those of you who write literary novels must come at it differently, um, <laughs> because there's a really different thing. When I read The Welsh Girl, um, I have a very different experience than when I read airport fiction, mm -hmm. for example, which I haven't done in years, so I'm, I'm just sort of remembering here, although I did watch The Born Identity last night, and I think it's probably an analogous experience. Um, will you talk a little bit about what it is to write a novel? This is your first, mm -hmm. um, after two very successful short story collections, and it's a literary novel, and by no means in any way like a Ledlam novel. <laughs> Um, it's just a whole other animal. So how is it a novel and how is something else a novel and how do you think about yourself as a novel writer? Well, initially the way I approach that um, is in comparison to being a short story writer. Uh, that's sort of the, my own writing history. And I, I think to some degree uh, as one moves on in a writing career, you're conscious of comparing yourself to other writers, you know, working both within a, within a similar vein to oneself and also in a, in a dissimilar vein to oneself. But um, there's also that sense of uh, competing with, I suppose one could say, oneself. And, and having had some success writing stories, I think one of the anxieties of writing this novel is, well, can I do this, you know, at the same level that I've been writing stories? Um, and that was difficult, I think, for a long time. One of the touchstones I think any of us have when we engage in a new project is that sense of, well, uh, how does this compare with the thing that I did in the past that was good, you know, that was published, that showed up somewhere that I was proud of? And uh, that's one of the ways we keep pressing on with new work to think, okay, yeah, this feels a little like that other thing that I have some confidence in. And when you're stepping into a novel after writing stories, I felt that for one of the difficult transitions for me was a kind of aesthetic um, change or challenge that I had to go through as the writer. You know, my particular sense of the short story, uh, and I should stress, I, it's not that I think I can write this, but that it's possible to write a perfect short story. And, you know, on really good days, if I stretch out my arm, it would feel as though maybe I could scratch the perfect short story with my fingernails. Um, and I do think there are, there are certain writers, I think of Chekhov, I think of, you know, Alice Munro, perhaps, who've managed to achieve that in, in certain ways. Um, but 
to talk about what I mean by perfection, I suppose my sense is of a the story, short story is a, is a unit in which every word counts, in which every word contributes to every other word. There's a kind of wholeness and a tightness and a cohesion to that, that unit. That I think is also very similar to poetry, of course, in, in, in that regard. The novel, I, I think, is a baggier, looser beast. In some ways, it's more like life than it is like art. And I think the short story is more artful in some ways um, than the novel. And so for a long time, I was trying to write this novel that had that kind of perfection in the context of... Um, in the same way that I thought about it in the context of the story. And I think initially my sense was that perfection wasn't just at arm's reach, but was sort of on the horizon. So it seemed just a lot further away and a lot harder to achieve, of course. But as I moved through the work, um, some sense of the idea that perfection was just the wrong goal for the novel began to dawn on me. So that was an interesting and challenging shift for me. It meant that I had to give up certain areas of confidence, some certain yardsticks that I'd used to measure my previous work by in the, in the work and uh, the engagement with the novel. I just had to trust it more and trust where it was going and let it lead me into different places as I progressed um, with the work. Um, when we talk about literary fiction in regard in, in any comparison with genre fiction, and these divisions are always difficult to draw. And you know, you mentioned earlier on that I had um, as a as a young writer in sort of my teens, I read almost nothing but science fiction in my first fairly dreadful novels are science fiction novels. But I want to say it's not because science fiction as a genre doesn't have literary merit. It's because I was a dreadful science fiction writer. In fact, it's a very challenging genre to work in and to work in well. Um, it's one that I have enormous affection for and is important to me as a writer, um, partly because of the background that I grew up in. My father was an engineer. I studied uh, science in college. Um, and so the first writers I knew and the easiest writers it was possible for me to imagine myself becoming were people with science backgrounds and engineering backgrounds who turned to science fiction to become writers in it. That sense of, well, my father's an engineer and I'm training to be a scientist and these people could become writers actually enabled me to think of myself or begin to think of myself as a writer. It's a very important um, step for me, I think, in, in moving where I, where I, where I moved. Um, when, I think of, when I think of the marketplace, I'm not sure there's a, a formal distinction between uh, a novel by Robert Ludlum or a, a literary novel, to, to speak in those terms. I think there are issues of ambition um, and here's the dangerous thing oh, the hubristic thing I feel like lightning will strike if I say this um, most of the writers I know who write literary fiction um, even though I think occasionally in bookstores and sometimes even from the point of view reviewers literary fiction is in itself a kind of genre it's sort of you know it has middle class values and it sort of uh, pertains to be artful. It's well written. It doesn't have lots of uh, drama and murder and mayhem necessarily. That's not actually how I think most writers of literary fiction think of literary fiction. I think what we think of that label literary uh, as, it, it, for me, it's like a strip of dino tape that says literary fiction on it. And what you really hope 50 years after you're dead is somebody will come along and peel off the dino tape that says literary fiction and underneath it will be the word literature. Um, it's incredibly hubristic to say that's what we're trying to do. And, I, and I, I say that not to claim that I'm doing it, but to say that that would be great. I would like that. I would like somebody to read that work in 50 years. Now, I, I'm not going to speak for Robert Ludlum here specifically, but I do think there are certain writers of genre fiction who do not have that aspiration. Uh, I don't blame them for having that. I think it's perfectly reasonable to entertain people in the moment. Um, but I think that's one of the distinctions that occurs to me um, in this particular space. And what sort of goes into that? I mean, in the case of, you know, my, my, my case study here, Ludlum, 
books are published in his name that he didn't actually write. So it isn't, he's a product, mm -hmm. uh, he's a brand, if sure. you will. Um, Peter O'Davies is not a brand. <laughs> Peter O'Davies is a writer. Um, and so, um, and, and most of the literary novelists and fiction writers I know sweat blood for all of those words, even if it's a baggier, as you say, sure, medium or form of fiction than the short story is. Um, I imagine every one of those words in that novel has been one that you have considered quite carefully several times. Rather strangely, by the time I'd finished the book, um, uh, for me at least, and whether this will be true for readers or not, part of the satisfaction uh, in the book is that it actually holds together in ways that I associate with the way a story holds together. It's just, it was impossible to see that in the midst of it, but now that it's finished, uh, it feels so some part of those aesthetic values that I brought over from the story actually do apply in the space of this particular novel. Um, but, but again, to speak to the, the genre distinction, I mean, maybe the, the issue is who one is writing for. Um, and I, I think if one is writing in a, in a genre novel, one of the expectations, one of the desires, and I have a lot of sympathy with this desire, is to have a large readership. Yeah? Um, and probably when I talk about this issue of a readership beyond my death, I'm talking about a large readership too. I'm just talking about that readership being, how would we put it, vertical in time rather than horizontal in time. And, you know, maybe the distinction between having, you know, a million readers now or, you know, having, well, a million, a million, the be, a million years over the next million years, perhaps, <laughs> uh, is, uh, I'm not sure which would be, which of those is most satisfying, quite frankly, or which of them represents a greater impact for the work. Um, but I suppose that one of the things that I, I value as a reader of, of fiction, uh, and I distinguish this, I suppose, from other forms of mass entertainment like uh, the cinema, which I enjoy a great deal, or television, um, one of the pleasures of going to a movie and seeing it in an audience is that a funny movie is funnier if you're watching it with 200 other people who are laughing, right? Um, and the novel and fiction, even though there are books that everybody's reading in this particular moment, by and large, the novel doesn't have to operate that way. Your pleasure and your satisfaction, your engagement with a book doesn't depend on whether or not anybody else is reading it at this moment in time. And in fact, almost certainly nobody else can be reading it the same way that you're reading it. They can't be reading it exactly simultaneously with you, not in exactly this moment in time, not at the same pace, not stopping at this page or at that chapter break in the same way that you are. Um, so there's a sense of this very personal communication between the book and the reader and the characters and the reader and to some degree, I think, the author and the reader. And that intimacy uh, is kind of thrilling to me as a reader, I should say. Um, and it's something that I'd hope to capture in my own work uh, and hope to give readers some kind of sense of in my own work. But actually, the most important thing for me is that that's coming from the pleasure I get as a reader of literary fiction. Well, that's a great place to stop, and it's the top of the hour. So we're going to have to for a station ID. This is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. And my guest today is author Peter Ho Davies. Um, we are talking about his forthcoming book, The Welsh Girl, which will be out in mid-February of next year. We'll be right back. <laughs>
listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Peter Ho Davies. And would you read for us a little bit more from The Welsh Girl? Sure. This is a, uh, a sequence from towards the end of the, the book. You mentioned that Rudolf Hess, Hitler's deputy Führer, is a sort of um, sort of secondary character in the book. There's a subplot concerning him and a um, German-Jewish refugee who's in interrogating him uh, that runs through the course of the book. And this is towards, um, I guess, one of their final encounters. Uh, this is just after the, uh, the end of the war, essentially. And this is Hess speaking. You have to remember how successful we were, how much we'd achieved, seizing power, reclaiming the Rhineland, Austria. We would look at each other and shake our heads in wonder. How could such things happen? You might think we were driven mad by power, but we, I don't speak for him, but the rest of us, we were the opposite of arrogant. We were humbled by these successes. We couldn't believe we'd achieved such things. Perhaps it was luck. But once you have enough luck, it starts to feel like fate. Like tossing a coin, having it come down heads again and again. Once or twice is nothing, but five times, ten? It's shocking, but how can you stop? So we set our, high, uh, set our sights higher. Poland, Holland, France, what next? What could top what had come before? The Soviet Union, we knew it was impossible, but everything else had been impossible too. He shook his head. And if you ask me, this, this thing, was another impossibility. What if we eradicate a whole people? What if there were a world without Jews? That's enough. It's the most Hess has ever called, but all Rotherham wants is for him to shut up. Some questions that occurs to him should never be asked, let alone answered. But Hess seems not to hear him. It's a hypothesis, you see. But the problem with a hypothesis is you don't know it's true until you test it. You can't believe a thing is possible until you do it. Yet until you do it, why even ask if you should? There's no morality about the impossible, Captain. To us, you must understand, this was like climbing Everest, like going to the moon. We couldn't believe such a thing was possible. That's how we could do it. Heth looks over, almost beseeching, but Rotherham leans back against the upholstery as if exhausted. It's madness, he knows now, and it comes to him forcefully how truly vain this mission has been from the start. Hess is mad, but not just now, not temporarily, not simply since his flight to Britain. He's always been mad. All of them have been, all the monsters and butchers, elusively mad, rationally mad, functionally mad. Under any other circumstances, he'd say Hess was unfit for trial, and yet, his, yet it's his very madness that demands to be tried. Thank you very much. Sure. That's Peter Ho Davies reading from The Welsh Girl. Now, we talked in the beginning of the show a little bit about um, the, the romance aspect mm. of um, this novel. And I'd like to talk now a little bit about the historical sure. nature of this novel and what it is to write fictional characters who actually were real-life characters. Um, Hess, a very famous mm. and um, one. So talk a little bit about how you took on Hess and <laughs> the deputy Führer of Hitler. And I've written about other, um, other historical figures in, in short fiction. I have a story that sort of touches on um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I have another story... Um, that deals with some historical figures um, who fought during the Zulu War. Um, but in both of those cases, and Butch and Sundance are a good example of this, although we know them to be historical figures, those people really existed, uh, they're figures who um, you know, have been widely fictionalized as a kind of mythic quality to them. And so that gives you a certain degree of room for maneuver, it seems to me. Um, when writing about, in general, when writing about, I think, the Second World War, which is much closer to us in time, 
um, but also throws up all kinds of you know larger moral questions as well, and particularly when writing about um, somebody like Rudolf Hess so much within uh, Hitler's inner circle, um, it does feel as though there are greater and larger responsibilities that come to bear. And I'm not sure, frankly, that I would have been able to write uh, or to write fictionally about any other figure uh, from amongst that inner circle. Um, it's hard enough to write about Hess. I mean, partly as a writer, these are very unpleasant characters to spend any time with, and it's difficult to spend that time on the page and to, to handle them uh, to some degree as, as human beings and as characters. Um, one of the things that I think allowed me to write about Hess, I mean, apart from the what seemed to be very interesting and sort of suggestive um, uh, historical fact that he was indeed held after his um, mysterious flight to Britain in 1941 for a time in a Welsh safe house, indeed a hospital. Um, this was during the period where he was claiming amnesia. Um, but of course, the great fact of Hess is we don't know what's true about him. We don't know why he flew to Britain. There's great mystery associated with what his mission was. Was he actually fleeing because he'd fallen out of favor with Hitler? Was he trying to negotiate a peace with the British so that the um, the Nazis could concentrate on the Eastern Front? Um, there there's no real certainty as to what the mission was, and this is further clouded by the fact that Hess, while in British hands, claimed amnesia, uh, and we don't know whether or not that claim was true or not. He did recant it at trial in Nuremberg, um, but there are many psychologists in the time who thought him, him to be suffering from a kind of hysterical amnesia. And I think it's those that sense of Hess, the sense of him being a very mysterious figure. I've occasionally talked about him as sort of like the Hamlet of the Third Reich in the sense that we don't know whether or not he's faking his antic disposition or not, um, that I think invites a kind of fictional treatment. Um, with nearly all the other figures, we know an awful lot about them. With Hess, there remains this essential mystery to him. And that, that mystery, that gap in the historical record, essentially, feels as though it's a space into which fiction can profitably move and move in, I hope, in ways that enlighten and throw some, uh, some possible light on those particular characters. Um, it's not actually a section in the book at the moment, although it was published separately as a story, but um, there, there was at, uh, at one point a very small section told from Hess's point of view um, in regard to the aftermath of the Nuremberg war trials, uh, war crimes trials, where he was reflecting on the other great, or one of the other great mysteries of the Second World War, which is how Hermann Goering, one of the other um, men tried uh, in Nuremberg who was uh, condemned to die, how he was able to uh, take his own life with a cyanide capsule the night before his execution. And again, the historical record can't answer that question. Uh, and yet, of course, it's a fascinating one to us. And there it felt as though it was possible to simply try and formulate a theory. And of course, it's Hess's theory, so it's a little bit of a crackpot theory in some ways. Um, but to explore that space, and that doesn't feel as though it is a, a falsification of the historical record because there is no historical record in that space. This sort of drive to answer questions... Um, Folks come at it different ways. Psychologists work on it. Um, scientists work, you know, like it, it, the anthropologists work on explaining. How well do you think fiction functions as a medium to explore some of these questions about humanity that are in many ways unanswerable? I think it works well because for me as a writer, but also for me as a reader, what it does that I think nothing else quite invites me to do is to put myself in the shoes of people who I'm not, people who are distant from me in time or space or gender, and in particular, people who are doing things that I hope I would never do myself in life. And that's true of all the characters uh, in, this, um, in this piece of work. 
Um, I'm interested in, you know, the various choices Esther has to make in her life in regard to her loyalty to family, to father, um, you know, to uh, to her nation uh, and to her lover. I'm interested in the choices that Karsten, and the young German soldier she becomes involved with, has to make in terms of his choice to surrender and to some degree also how he feels about fighting. Um, but I'm also interested, of course, in um, the various choices that Hess has gone through as well. In the way that I think we are... The great moral challenge, I suppose, whenever we think about the Nazi regime, uh, and the reason why I, I tend to resist ideas that are about, well, we shouldn't revisit that, we shouldn't write about it, we shouldn't fictionalize that, um, is this great question of how did that happen and could it happen again? And for me, the, gr the part of that that's most alarming and terrifying and also fascinating is the complicity of the German people. I think, in that process. How did people do this? And, you know, we can think about the German people as an entire nation in that regard, but we can also, I think, uh, think of even just Hitler's inner circle. How did all those people go along with this? In some instances, quite cultured people go along with this. Um, and in the context of writing the book, I was curious about both the role of Karsten, a foot soldier in, in the German war machine, and I wanted to to provide a certain range and depth of the book to also look at one of the order givers who stands above him in that hierarchy. And that's one of the reasons why Hess was a, a character that was interesting to me, I think, to deal with. Um, you know, uh, while this is historical fiction, of course, um, and it's taken me a number of years to write the book, and so some of it has been written, you know, in the shadow of our own complicated political times. Um, and that's been both a fascinating parallel and sometimes um, a burden because it's sometimes skewed the way I've been writing the book and I wanted to write more politically than perhaps the, the material lends itself to. But I am very interested not in what I think of as somewhat hyperbolic rhetorical comparisons of, you know, our president with Hitler. You know, this, this language is, um, I think, not particularly helpful. But I think whenever one's government is doing one thing, things that one disagrees with, uh, then one has to think about the complicity of the German people, I think, to some degree. So whether, you know, George Bush isn't Hitler, but are we, and I don't mean this just in terms of the American people, but I think this in terms of, you know, people in Britain, people in Western Europe, are we in some sense com comparable to the German people? Yes, it's a good question. <laughs> and to what degree are sort of groups of people... Um, problematic i mean like as a as a you know what what happens when there's the individual versus the the mass right and um, the, the the challenge it seems to me is how much are we individually responsible for things done in our names by groups that we're part of and so then the question is how much are we obliged to shape the group we're a part of and how much can we step back from that group and say no no that wasn't me uh, even if it was done in my name or done by people notionally leading me or funded by me by my tax dollars all those kind of questions we're going to have to leave the folks with those heavy questions to ponder, I'm afraid. Um, but rather than stop right there, I want to ask one tiny little question before we, we run out the door, which is um, novels, short stories. Where are you now that this one's um, sort of out of the oven, so to speak? Uh, I have enjoyed writing this book a, a great deal. There are plenty of frustrations along the way, but um, but also a great deal of pleasures. Um, I actually think, you know, I... I We'll probably return to writing some stories, uh, and the experience of the novel will probably help that. But I also expect to write further novels, too. More novels. All right. Well, lovely. Well, we are blessed then by um, more to come, and certainly by this one, too, which will be out in February. Peter Ho-Davies, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. And I'd like to thank our engineer, Chaz Barrett. 
And I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. Next week, Rachel Harkai will be interviewing Laura Kashishki. Stay tuned to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. The sports report is next. And if you want to take a look or listen, rather, to any um, of the archives of The Living Writers Show, they can be found at www.wcbn.org slash livingwriters or by subscribing to the podcasts on iTunes. And now, you can do it! The Daily Sports Report. You can do it all night long! On 88.3 WCBN FM.